Tuesday, right? They fly out and they're, they're going back to, to Vegas to their sending church in Vegas that's partnering with us in this. Uh, it's an exciting time in the life of our church to be able to send the good news of Jesus to another part of the world. So if you'll open your Bibles to John 17, that's where we are this morning as we're nearing the end of our, our Lenten series uh, about the farewell teaching of Jesus, his last words for the church. So, so when it comes to genres of movies and stuff, I, I like spy movies, right? I like spy shows, I like spy novels, uh, especially I like spy gadgets. I, th I think they're really cool. And there are websites where you can buy this stuff, right? Uh, like this, um, as it's titled, Detect Ear Extreme Range Listening Device. Um, I'm sure it's made in America based on the title that was given to it. For only $548, you can hear a conversation three football fields away. And probably for that money, I imagine the camouflage guy come, comes with it. Right? Here's another one. Um, this looks like a cigarette lighter, right? No. It's a listening device. It is a voice-activated audio recorder for only 200 bucks. You can covertly record up to 250 hours of superior high-quality high audio from an unassuming fake lighter. And your, your friends will think you're just lighting up except your, your lighter doesn't work. And really, you're recording the conversation. My all-time favorite, though, is the wall-door dictograph eavesdropper. And the reason I like this one best is because uh, a couple of reasons. One, I think it must come with the glass up there that the guy's using to listen to the wall in case this doesn't work. It's only eight bucks, and you're pretty confident it works because it says America on it. So um, for those of us who work in our office, uh, we know that Karen uh, Grubb, our office administrator, owns all of these devices and uses them covertly in the office because you can have a conversation like three offices away with the door closed. And if you mention Karen, she comes and knocks on the door and says, were you talking about me? Literally, this happens in our office. Uh, she knows, somehow she knows she must be a spy. But today, today we get to take eavesdropping to a whole new level. Um, we get to eavesdrop on God. Because in John chapter 17, Jesus, God the Son, prays to God the Father, and we get to listen in on a conversation amongst the Trinity. Think about that for a minute. We are eavesdropping on a conversation amongst the Trinity. And as, as you wrap your mind around it, let me remind you, it's, it's all the more um, powerful when, when we remember again where and when this conversation takes place. So it happens the Thursday evening before Jesus goes to the cross on Good Friday. It's traditionally called Maundy Thursday, and all of the teaching that we've been covering in this series on Jesus' last words to the church come from that Thursday evening, including this prayer of Jesus. And, and we have a special service to commemorate the, 
the events of this night. It happens on the Thursday night before Easter um, at, at 7 p.m. here in this room on the 14th. So I hope you'll come join us. It is re really a special uh, reflective time on the love of God for, for us that evening. So that's when this prayer is taking place. In terms of where it's taking place, if you remember, we had this, I showed you this earlier, the, the upper room is down here where Jesus has the Last Supper, and after, after that, he leaves and travels along here out the city gate, probably along the Kidron Valley to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And this prayer could be taking place up here if Jesus lingered in this room, but probably it's somewhere along the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus stops and prays. Um, when he arrives in the garden, he is going to pray yet again. And you get a sense here how much prayer mattered to Jesus, which makes sense because for Jesus and for us, prayer is so much more than a task or a thing we do. It's a relationship. And Jesus, just like we do when we pray, is talking to the Father. And there in that garden, Judas would arrive with soldiers. He's gonna, Jesus is going to be arrested, and all of his disciples, all of them are going to flee, which makes one of the, one of the um, emphasis in Jesus' prayer in John 17 all the more amazing, because literally at the hour of their desertion, Jesus is praying for his unfaithful disciples. What wondrous love is this? So let's pray together, and then we'll look at Jesus' prayer uh, for his disciples. Let's pray. Lord, every once in a while we're aware of um, how extraordinarily sacred what we are about to experience is, what we're about to see, what we're about to hear. And for us to eavesdrop on communication between you and your son. This is a really extraordinary thing. And I pray that uh, you might give us ears to hear, uh, minds to grasp the wonder of this prayer and, and why Jesus is praying it, what he is praying for, even for us, even for the likes of us. So have mercy on us now by your word and your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, as we eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer, um, you might be wondering, how did John capture these words for us, right? Did he have the lighter, you know? Um, no, he had something better, right? John was there in person. This is an eyewitness account. He's overhearing Jesus praying. And there are 10 other eyewitnesses there he could have asked later on as he was writing this work. Um, he also had access to the risen Jesus after the resurrection to ask him about what he prayed and why he prayed it. Um, but most significantly, he had the promised Holy Spirit, right? And in John 14, 
we saw this. The helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we are reading the words of Jesus' prayer as the Holy Spirit has shaped and preserved John's memory for us. That's how we get these words. And Jesus' prayer progresses, the part we're going to look at today progresses through three relationships, right? And next week we'll look at the back end of the prayer, which moves to a fourth set. But he begins by um, praying about his relationship with his father, and then he moves to his relationship with his disciples, and then eventually he'll move on to praying for the world, about the world, and his relationship with the world. So he begins with that focus on his relationship with the Father in the first five verses. Let me read them to you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So Jesus is keenly aware of the timing here. This is it, right? He says the hour has come. And the first thing that he wants to talk with his father about on the, on the edge of, of this hour, this weekend where he will lay down his life and then be raised again, the first thing that he wants to talk about in a word is glory. If you were just listening, you heard it. He talks about glory and glorifying over and over again. Five times Jesus mentions either glorifying the Father or the Father glorifying him in these five opening verses. Five times he'll say that. And when Jesus talks about glorifying the Father, he has in mind at the forefront of it the cross, what he's about to do in the next 12 hours or so, he's going to go to the cross. Jesus in verse 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, right? And Jesus begins his prayer with a prayer of, we could say it's consecration, of submission to what's about to happen in the weekend ahead, the cross and his resurrection on the third day. And even though the cross is still future, right? It's the next morning. It's so sure that Jesus speaks of it in the past tense as being accomplished. This great work on the cross where Jesus bears the sins of the world is a certainty. Jesus will accomplish the Father's work that he's given to him. And this greatest act of obedience and love, the Son glorifies the Father and then Jesus prays that the Father would in turn glorify the Son as he raises his from the dead and he ascends back to be with the Father at his right hand. In verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here Jesus is praying about his resurrection and then days later his ascension when he returned to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as the creed says. And in verses 2 and 3, Jesus is praying about the work the Father gave him, this great reconciling work that the Father has given him. He says, since you have given him, the Son, 
Jesus, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the great work that Jesus is setting himself apart to do by the cross to bring eternal life to the ones the Father had given to him. And that eternal life, he says, is knowing God, right? It's entering into a relationship with God that lasts forever. And then he says it's also entering into a relationship with Jesus, his son. So this is truly a conversation between two divine members of the Christian, Christian God, the Trinity. Because Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God and knowing him. Right? And he says also that he had glory that he possessed before the beginning of the world, before the world existed. Who could say this but God? So Jesus is here making God-like claims. And so we see that within the persons of the Trinity here, between the Father and the Son, there is great cooperation, perfect cooperation, mutual care, perfect love. And this is going to be of the utmost importance next week as we look at the last part of Jesus' prayer, how much the Father loves and cares for the Son and how much the Son loves and cares about the Father. Here we see their cooperative work their mutual glory sharing. The Son, He loves the Father, and the Father, He loves the Son. Pastor and author Kevin Miller summarizes his father-son relationship when he writes, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in absolute unity of love. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son gives glory to the Father. The Spirit knows the thoughts of God and prays to God for our sake. The Father has all authority, yet He gives that authority to the Son, and the Spirit speaks on God's authority. Meanwhile, the Son lives in absolute obedience to the Father, for the Son does only what He sees the Father doing, and the Spirit is sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. He says, do you see that in the Trinity there's no jealousy, no politics, no power plays? The reason we can't find many good analogies for the Trinity is that we constantly live in such broken relationship that it's hard for us to imagine a community in which there's constant joy and creativity and each person pouring himself out for the others. He says, it sounds crazy, but I think it would be theologically accurate to say, God is a party and you're invited. Right? Jesus' prayer begins with this this focus on his relationship with his father, their mutual concern for one another's glory and their shared mission to bring eternal life to God's people. Now next, remarkably, Jesus turns to pray for his disciples and his prayer is riddled with love and care and concern for his disciples. These are the very ones who are on the verge of failing him. Okay. Look down at verses 6 through 8. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. 
before he actually prays for them, he prays about them and he says that they belong to him. They are his people, given to him from the Father. They keep his word. They know that Jesus speaks for God and is sent from God. And then down in verse 9, the next verse, he begins to pray for those who are his. He's praying in this section of the prayer specifically for those 11 disciples that are there. Not exclusively for them. The prayer fits us all, but that's who he has in his crosshair. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And here Jesus asks two great asks of the Father for his friends, for his disciples. For their protection, and then in a few, in a few verses, he's going to pray for their holy mission that's given to them. But first, in this section, he's praying about their protection for two reasons. Jesus loves his friends, and he's keenly aware that the world does not. Okay? As Jesus prays, it's, it's clear that he divides um, the population of the earth into two categories, right? His disciples and the world. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The disciples have been given to Jesus by the Father. They're taken out of the world. Once they were in the world, but no more. The Father has removed them from the category of world and has given them over to the category of Jesus. Right? They belong to him. They're his. And in verse 9, he reiterates this distinction and adds that his prayers are for his own, not for the world. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he says that the relationship between these two groups, between world and disciple, is one of hostility. Look all the way down to verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is praying here for his friend's protection because he knows better than anyone that the world is a hostile place, an even hateful place for followers of Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us when the world hates us too. We should find great comfort in knowing that Jesus has prayed for us as we face their hatred. Because Jesus' work in prayer is really effective here. Only Judas was lost. He says, none, none of my disciples were lost. I kept them all safe except for Judas. And Judas was in some mysterious fulfillment of the will of God according to Scripture. 
He says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, my disciples, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And, and scholars make an interesting observation here about this title that's given to Judas, right? The son of destruction. That same phrase occurs in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, chapter 2, but there it refers to the end times antichrist. For John, Judas probably was viewed as an early example of such an evil figure, they say. Jesus repeatedly throughout this prayer expresses his protective care for his disciples. You've already seen he's praying for them as part of his care for them. He keeps them in the Father's name. He keeps them faithful to the Father and he guards them from unbelief. In verse 12, he says these things. I kept them in your name. I have guarded them and not one has been lost. In verse 11, he passes the baton to the Father so that that same protective care might be in place. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, next week, in the last part of Jesus' prayer, we'll talk more, a lot more about this whole issue of being one it's a big concern of Jesus. Um, as you see here, his concern is for their unity. It seems that that's, Jesus is mindful, that's where the enemy is going to attack the church, in the area of unity. Gosh, have we seen that strategy on display in the last couple of years? I mean, who would have dreamed? Who, who could have predicted that matters of public health and safety, things like masks and vaccines would divide the church of Jesus Christ. How thankful I am for Jesus praying for his disciples that we would be one. Don't you know that's why we're still together? The preserving power of the prayers of Jesus for, for us. And this section of Jesus' prayer is full of expressions for his care for his disciples. We belong to him, he says. The Father who made us has given us to Christ as his own. He guards us. He keeps us from the evil one. And he says it is for our sake that he consecrates himself to this holy weekend's work. If you skip all the way down to verse 19, he says it explicitly. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He gives us eternal life, which to Jesus means that we will be in his company forever. Verses two and three. Since, you've been, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is procuring here our company forever. And he's concerned about our joy. In verse 13, he says, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus, on the eve of his torturous death, 
He's praying for his disciples. He's caring for them in prayer. He's caring for us. He was praying for our protection when he was about to be tortured to death. He prayed for our eternal life hours away from death on the cross. He prayed and called us mine even as all the disciples deserted him and fled. He consecrated himself to this weekend of suffering for our sake. Church, know this morning, you are greatly loved by Jesus, right? You are greatly loved by Jesus. Three times, he calls his failing disciples a gift from God, right? I don't know when the last time someone called you a gift from God, but that's how Jesus thinks about you. Look down verse 6. I have manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Down in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They are yours. Three times Jesus says that his disciples are the Father's gift to him. Jesus cares about his disciples. And he will keep you even in the midst of a world that hates you. You know, we've seen here the mutual care of father and son for one another. They're concerned for each other's glory. We see Jesus caring for his disciples. And now we get a glimpse in the last part of the prayer we'll look at today of his concern for the world. And this really is surprising to me because Jesus is so clear that the world is marked off as hostile territory for his disciples. But remember, Jesus is intent on rescuing future disciples from that same world, right? He he pulls his disciples out of the world. And Jesus' next request of the Father propels his disciples into that very same hating and hostile world. Look at verses 16 through 19. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays here about sanctifying or consecrating, that is, setting apart his disciples for his purpose in their life. And that purpose, he says, is to send them into the world to rescue others just as he was sent into the world to rescue them. This is why Jesus doesn't just yank us out of the world once we are saved. He loves the world and sends us as his agents into it to share his love with them. You know, if we back up one more verse, we hear Jesus pray this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus does not want the Father to take us out of the world um, because he loves the world. He just wants us to be kept safe from the evil one because he is sending us into the world to rescue others by his love just as he rescued them. 
Professor Gerald Borchett writes, the, the prayer of Jesus was not for God to send something like rescue planes to evacuate the disciples from their hostile setting in the world. Such a plan would destroy God's mission through them, nor was it to wrap them in some plastic danger-free safety casing where they would never encounter evil, but the prayer of Jesus was to protect them from succumbing to the onslaught of evil or the evil one. D.A. Carson writes, the Christian's task then is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth by the help of the Holy Spirit and absorbing all the malice that the world can muster, finally protected by the Father himself in response to the prayer of Jesus. We are protected by the Father himself in response to the prayer of Jesus. You know, when Jesus says that he consecrated himself, it's simply referring back to what we saw in those opening verses, right? He's intent on glorifying the Father by bearing the cross and bringing eternal life to those who are his. Professor Dale Bruner catches the tricky nuance of Jesus' disciples' relationship to the world. He says, the Christian's relation to the world's a tricky one because we are sent into it, not taken out of it. And yet we are sent into it to love its people in such a way that we do not love its ways. The world is our goal, not our source, our place of work, not our measure of worth, our mission, not our Messiah, the person who we are to love and yet much of whose motives we are to distrust. These are not easy combinations, he says, but an exciting and challenging mission. This is what Jesus has in mind when he prays for our sanctification, right? Our being set apart for a mission into the world to share the rescuing love of God with them. It's been noted that in, in John's gospel, when he writes about this sanctification, that it is always for mission. It's always setting people apart for mission. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent you into the world. I have sent them into the world, Jesus says. I think a good example of this was um, last year, late last year, October 16th, 2021. You probably heard about this. Um, there was a notorious Haitian gang that abducted 17 Christian missionaries, held them hostage for a season. Five children were believed to be among those kidnapped, including a two-year-old. The hostages had been visiting an orphanage when they were abducted. And throughout their ordeal, though, family members of the, of the captives were united in their desire to pray for, to bless, and to forgive the gang members. This is what they wrote while their family was still in, in captivity. They wrote, the kidnappers, this is the family of those in captivity. The kidnappers, like all people, are created in the image of God and can be changed if they turn to him. While we desire the safe release of our workers, we also des desire that the kidnappers be transformed by the love of Jesus the only true source of peace, joy, and forgiveness. One father of a hostage said this about the kidnappers. We are interested in the salvation of these men, and we love them. Another father of a hostage said, as a family, we are giving forgiveness to these men. We are not holding anything against them. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, the father says. Loving rescue. 
to share the love of Christ in word and deed. And at the close of the service today, we have a chance to do that as we talked about last week with a family in our community where the father has passed away due to cancer and I believe he left five children, a wife and five children, I think it is. Um, he used to run the burger shop downtown. And uh, we're gonna take our offering at the close of the service and Daniel will give you some instructions about that so we can bless this family, neighbors of one of, our, of the blacks who shared with you last week. Um, we can bless them in the name of Jesus and speak of his love to them. But notice, Jesus says we are to be sanctified in this mission of God by truth, the truth of God's word. And this, this matters so much that you are opening your Bibles every day, daily personal Bible It really does matter. It readies us for our mission of being sent into the world with Christ's love. The truth of God sets us apart and prepares us for this mission of Christ that he's now placed in the hands of his disciples. And so as we eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer this morning, we've heard of his mutual care and concern that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. Our God is in loving community, always has been, always will be. And we see the love and care Jesus has for his friends, his disciples, as he prays for their protection, that they would stay in the name of God, that they would be kept from the evil one. This is our great hope and comfort. Jesus prays for us. We will not be swallowed up by evil. And we see that the disciples are sent into the world as Jesus was sent to bear the love of God to the world, offering eternal life in Jesus to know and love him and God the Father. May the prayer of Jesus shape us in our praying and in our mission to our neighbors who still need Jesus and his love. Let's pray together. Jesus, thanks for letting us listen in. Hear how you love the Father. Hear how you love your disciples. And hear even a glimpse of your love for the world that you would send us back in, having rescued us from the world. And so, Lord, shape us. Shape us by your prayers. May they have their full fruit in us as you desire. Lord, especially that we might be mindful of how loved we are for you, that you would keep us safe from the evil one, that you would send us into the world bearing the love of, of Christ. Here in Wake Forest, around the world, places like Cambodia, God, wherever you would send us. And this, Jesus, we ask in your great name and for your sake. Amen.